Welcome to The Third Wheel. This is episode three of The Shadow Rising, and today we're going to talk about chapters 18 through 27 in this very good book. Wait, 27? I thought it was 26. You are totally right. We are stopping before we hit chapter 27. (laughs) You had me for a second. Yeah, we were suddenly going to be, oh no. I did my last notes... At about 7.40 this morning, which is relevant to note because I work night shift. So I was alert and oriented because the notes were good, but I might have lost track of which number I did. Remains to be seen. (laughs) We'll find out when we get there. So, I'm Tyler. Joining me... um, I'll say that again. Sorry, I interrupted your spiel. I'm Bion. And I'm Jesse. And, you know, I had a whole intro planned, but I think I'm not going to do it. Uh, I'll just sort of outline it and you all can fill in, in your own mind, what it would have sounded like. There was going to be lots of, you know, going back through the glass columns and, oh, I'm remembering when we decided to start the podcast and when I first read the books and then... You know, Bionis beside me, clawing their eyes out. And eating them. Eating, and bloody froth from the mouth. But um, I don't know that I have that in me, sort of emotionally speaking. So, well, I don't know if you get the effort points for that one. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Listen, I was up late. I just worked five days in a row. It turns out the hospitals are having a bad time. <laughs> So let's distract ourselves. Yeah. With some good chapters to start with. Like Uh, chapter 18, Into the Ways. There's some exciting stuff in this section and some very not exciting stuff. Yeah, we gotta cut through the chaff to get to the wheat. Uh, So chapter 18, Into the Ways. Bion, I want to hear about the heteronormativity in this chapter. They're nonsense, and they need to stop. I mean, it's, is that exclusive to het couples? It's it's the gender no. role component of it, and the role of men versus women, and That's the fair. expectation of it. And I actually talked to Tyler a little bit about this, about... Oh, actually, it wasn't this couple. It was about the couple with the letters. That's later. That's, that's the... Uh, Elaine, that's her name. Elaine and Rand. Elaine and Rand. That's actually the conversation I had about hetero nonsense. It's yeah, mostly... I, defi- I definitely got more of that vibe from that little beat. This one, I think I just don't really like the two of them together. It's annoying. It's, it's silly. It's very, it's very young. It, it reflects their age and everything, but it's just so boring. I think it's fine. I think parents just dumb. Well, yeah. Yeah, I like left. I stepped away from typing the notes about this chapter to go and listen to a part in the audiobook uh, for book six, where Fayil is like, Perrin being a protector for me both makes me all bothered and hot and also angry. And it's like, good. Well, this continues. Yeah. Anyway, most of this chapter is very drawn out walking. Yeah. Yeah. That's why there's only two bullet points. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, also, this might be the first explicit mention of Perrin saying, if Fayil gives me a way to Moraine, I vow she'll not sit down for a week. Here we go. It begins. Here we go. Let the spanking begin. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, I don't know. This is just like so excessively juvenile. Like they're literally doing the thing where it's like, tell Fael I feel this. Yeah. Or if he isn't going to ask for a favor, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I don't know. It's it's not very fun. No, it's, it's immature. Which they're 19 and 20, but like I remember being at least a little more mature than that. Well, we hope. We hope. Anyway, to say that we continue this chapter implies that we start it, so I guess we should do that. <laughs> uh, Perrin's in his room, he's finishing up preparations, uh, and when he leaves he finds Gaul waiting. Uh, Gaul continues to be too chill for any other character in the books to interact with. Can't Perrin, get a read on him. No. Uh, Perrin confirms that he's not going to get any help from any other Aiel, meaning that the only way forward through this is for him to die, which at least shows that he is trying to not just sacrifice himself because up until he, now there was no mention of any other option. Yeah, he was exploring some options. Yeah, but he's like, if I'm not getting a bunch of Aiel to come with me to kill all these white cloaks, then guess I'll die. So the two of them get to the stables. Fael, Loyal, Bane, and Chiad are waiting there for them. And we got our first taste of Aiel Dis Wars. Yes. There's a lot of, if they say something that's too clever for you to retort, you just, like, do a bunch of kickflips. Yeah. <laughs> just flip in place until you feel like you've won the conversation. <laughs> There's a lot of that later. <sighs> so the people that are riding horses get on them. And then something happens in the stone uh, where Rand has assembled everyone. And there's like a small earthquake. Rand's popping off. Uh, I will say I do like, I wish that the chapters that this uh, recurring event was in were better. But I do like that we get two instances of characters outside of the stone that are leaving it. Like... Whatever happens in there happens. They turn around and are like, we gotta go. <laughs> it's useful framing. It's just that the chapters it takes place in are probably the most boring chapters in this entire book. Yeah, like 18 and 19 are not good. And uh, 20. And 20. 20 is also not good. 20 is slightly better because at least it reveals like something about the world. 19 is just Elena and Nave bubbling their way onto a boat. We I didn't really it. mind that, to be honest. Well. Well, we'll get to it. That's okay. Everybody's wrong sometimes, and you shouldn't feel bad. I can see Vion gearing up. I'll pay for that. Uh, so the band rides out, uh, lowercase b band, just to be clear. They ride out, finding their way to the way gate, and Perrin leads the way in, with Gaul following after. And then once they're in, Perrin's like... No, I'm not waiting for her to come through. I'm going to show her how cool I am. We'll meet them at the first guiding stone. Like, Perrin. We petty now. Why are you like this? 
So, blissfully, it's over, and we're in chapter 19, The Wave Dancer. It's not over. It's not over. Well, the Perrin and Fayil thing is over for now. We're done talking about them for all of today. So, Elaine and Nave arrive at the docks, uh, waiting for their ship. They arrive in very Elaine and Nave fashion, where Nave berates their wagon driver for following her instructions, and then Elaine tries to smooth it all over with money. And that's just Wonder Squad 2.0 right out the gate. Yeah, I will say, like, even going one step deeper, what's great about it is that Nave Nanave is upset and then is berating the guy and says, like, did you veer into every pothole you could find? And then later on says, well, I guess it wasn't really his fault. And Elaine talks about, like, you know, he did his best here, have some extra money. And then Nanave scolds her for spending more money. Yeah. The good news is Elaine does actually have like some internal monologue in here where she thinks about wanting to be a good ruler, which is good. It's good. It's good. Uh, I mean, the actual characterization in this chapter, I prefer to the Perrin and Fayil stuff, but the actual events are somehow even less interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because it's more like they're, they're getting a place, but when you're actually reading, even though the action they're physically taking in the plot is kind of boring, it's still more interesting to read, at least for myself. I wasn't yeah, that, dreading it. Yeah, it has a bit more texture. Yeah, I will say this... It doesn't fall into this trap specifically because it's... It's the phrase I'm looking for. Like, because the sea folk are plot relevant, it doesn't fall into this. But if they weren't, if they were just kind of a side existence and were never explored in any of the books, I could see this being one of the chapters that you mentioned, Jesse, back in, like, book two. In that one, it was... Uh, the group was like a day outside of Falm, mm-hmm. and they were, you said, like, Robert Jordan wants us to spend a chapter seeing that these characters thought through all of the options and then decided on one. If yeah, the that C-folk, is pretty similar, actually. Yeah, if the Seafolk like were a bunch well, of justification about why the Seafolk are willing to take them and use their magic to get them there real fast. Yeah, I think in any book, I think Robert Jordan would still do it if the Seafolk weren't plot-relevant. But I think that, like, in any book where they weren't, other authors would have just said, like, you know, they might have had a paragraph or two flashback or, like, internal monologue about what they had to say or do to mm-hmm. get onto the boat. Whereas Jordan so then we wants... we two chapters. Yeah, he wants to, like, sit down, talk it through, go through the, you know, multiple layers of custom and blah, blah, blah. Which can be admirable. Yeah. The sea folk are cool. Great. So they actually get to the ship, and we get our first description of the sea folk. Uh, they're clearly, like, always on the sea, and in fact, I didn't pull it out, but later in the next chapter, I think there's a quote about, like, sea folk will, like, cry if they have to stay on shore too long. And, and they give birth at sea. Yeah, like, pregnant women will, like, get in a rowboat and go on the water to give birth because they will not give birth on land. They like the sea. Yeah. 
You could say uh, they're sea folk. Yeah, they're folk from the sea. Uh, many of them have tattoos and piercings, including even some piercings in their nose. How wild and wacky. So, Elena and Nave go through the sort of ritualistic greetings with the sail mistress and the wind finder of the ship, who are sort of number one and number two, uh, and they're sisters, but weirdly the wind finder looks significantly younger, uh, and they make their way below deck to the cabins to talk more. So during this opening part of the conversation, uh, Elaine sort of notes that she can at least kind of puzzle out relative rankings of the folk from how many piercings they have. And then we also find out that the women always go topless. Great. Thank you, Jordan. It just sounds like a lot of sunburns, to be honest. Well, I mean, you get tanned, right? Yeah, after the burning. Yeah. Um, I I liked hearing about the sail mistress and the wind finder and their their various intricacies of how they work on the ships and their dynamics. Cause I I just like characterization. Like just just give me a pile of your great OCs and I'll read mm-hmm. about them. Don't make me read about a travel again where they travel like maybe a hundred miles in the grass. I don't care about the grass. I care about the people. Luckily, um, we do skip most of that this time. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's a very notable skipping of traveling in this section. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't mind this chapter, and I think it's interesting seeing the dynamics of just Nanave and Elaine, where Elaine doesn't have to play peacekeeper between Aggy and Nanave. She just has to play peacekeeper between Nanave and everyone else. Between Nanave and everybody else. I'm sorry about my friend. She's just a little feral. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice. And it's nice to see Elaine have a little bit of a personality beyond, uh, I'm rich. I mean, she's a personality trait. I mean, it, yeah, a little bit. Um, and she's obviously still has that, but it's nice to see her interacting with people who aren't just people who have to interact with her. Yeah. I, I mean, this isn't that bad. Like... The conversation is semi-boring, although I will say, actually, on rereading it to take notes, I liked it much more than I when I was just reading it for myself, weirdly enough. But yeah, like, similar. I mean, when I was reading it the first time, it felt like it was 50 pages. Yeah. But it ends up being more like 15. 30 pages. Oh, great. Still pretty long, but... Yeah, I mean, the information is interesting. I just think it isn't presented in the most interesting way. Or at least we're, like, waiting to get to plot. And so it's a little tough to be like, we're going to take a diversion to have exposition about this group of people that you have never met before. And also the exposition is now lasting for 30 pages. I would have edited so much of this book. Well, yes. So much editing. I wonder if this is why he married his editor, so he could get away with shit. Yeah. (laughs) She should have just set him on fire. (laughs) Noted not guest of the podcast, Harriet McDougal, is not sitting beside me. (laughs) Uh, So we get some stuff. The sea folk also have some prophecies of the Koromur. Yeah. 
which is a cooler name than the Dragon Reborn. It sounds less edgy. It sounds less like I'm going to be covered in non-purposeful zippers and <laughs> sharp pointy things. Oh. Where the Dragon Reborn's like, look at me. I'm so cool. I'm the dragon, but I've been reborn. Look at my bangs. What? You know, like, I feel like Dragon Reborn has some emo bangs going on. You don't even consume Tetsuya no more content. Why are you like this? <laughs> Is it the Dragon Reborn or Reborn the Dragon? Oh, no. No one knows. No, 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 no. I'm maybe legit going to turn this call off. I can't <laughs> handle that. Oh, boy. We're moving on. Moving on. You have another chapter of very similar stuff. Yeah, so we're really not moving on. So Elena and Nave uh, negotiate for their passage, and at the conclusion, hey, it's the same shock that happened to Perrin and Co. It's that earthquake situation. Yep, and they agree to take them because... Was it Elaine or Nanave that decided to tell them about the Black Aja? I think it was Elaine. Elaine. Because she was yeah, like, so you know what? Nanave's not doing well with the peopling. She's going to say something stupid again. I'm just going to cut this off and tell them the truth. They've been cool with us. Yeah. Bold move, Elaine. Yeah. So we reach chapter 20, Winds Rising. The ship is undamaged, but the women are all up on deck. And somewhere in here, Elaine, like, turns to Nanave and says, just be tactful. And Nanave's like, I am tact incarnate, you <laughs> dumb little... It's pretty good. Uh, it might have been earlier, I don't remember, but it was very enjoyable to read. Nanave's just so angry. She's so angry all the time. She needs it to channel. Yeah. So when the women get there, Tom and Julian are there on the docks, waiting to join, if Elaine and Nanave allow it. Consent is important. I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, no, not like that. I, I know. Uh, Elaine goes to talk to them after, okay, this is where I think Nanave says that she can be tactful, wink wink. Or no, what Nanave says is like, I'll be fine, but Elaine, you need to keep your temper in check. Don't freak out at them. And Elaine, like, laughs and then walks away. So it turns out that Julian was basically strong-armed into going by Lan and Rand. And then Elaine makes a comment about, like, Oh, so Rand wanted to send a protector with me, huh? Well, maybe I should send him a third letter. No, no, no. Three letters would just confuse him. G insert gun into mouth. She knows not what she does. Yeah. Bion does not look like they. Do you, do you want me to talk about the letters now, or want me to talk later? I mean, we have a we have a note of it later. Yeah. Okay. Like how Rand reacts to it. Yeah. Uh, the women agree to let Tom and Julian on board, and they make their way out to sea. Once they get out there, all the women take their tops off. Once again, thank you, Jordan. Uh, Nave and Julian go below deck, and Elaine and Tom talk for a while. There's some sort of history, but Elaine just can't remember. She just wants to tug on his mustaches. Strange Those mustaches are so familiar. Yeah. Suddenly, during this conversation, Elaine is shocked and is like, Hey, sorry, I gotta go. Uh, the Windfinder is weaving. It turns out that the sea folk have Windfinders that channel. And the channeling is, like, very different 
slash better in many ways than what the Aes Sedai can do. Even considering that Elaine is way stronger than any other Aes Sedai, she's still like, I don't know that I could do that. It's very specialized. Yeah. This is why the Seafolk ships don't carry Aes Sedai, which is a cool little, like, set it up one chapter ago, pay it off at the end of this one. And then next chapter, Moraine was like, I suspected such. Yeah. Um, So Elaine swears not to tell and then asks to be taught how to control the weather, which is a thing that she can kind of do going forward. It's a good skill. Yeah. Uh, So chapter- Emphasis on the kinda. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She like can make it less bad than it is. So chapter 21, Into the Heart- um, we open on every Tyran noble assembled in the Heart of the Stone, which is, you know, that place with the massive redstone columns. Moraine is waking... Wow. Hold on. Let me drink some water and try that sentence again. I can read it. Moraine is making her way through the waiting crowd with Egwene following, and we get some commentary on the way to the Tyran... Nobles are fairy. See, you didn't do that good either. You added and changed a bunch of words in there. But not in a good way. Moraine doesn't think very highly of them, and she's thinking about the main cast leaving and why each one needs to be where they are. Wow. Great. Tyler, you're out of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You've been voted off the island. So in here... Uh, some of Moraine's commentary on the Tyran nobles. Um, I cut out some bits in the middle of this, but it's... I just liked the phrase, Only the High Lords themselves had ever been bidden to this place, and they had come only four times a year, at the twin demands of law and custom. They came now at the summons of their new lord, the maker of law and breaker of custom. Um, There was some more stuff in there about, like... She's thinking this while she's stepping around skirts of noble women, which I think once I cut it out and made it a little weird because it was too short. But like, I like the idea that she's saying the only reason they ever came here is because they had to. And now this guy has showed up and said, not only do you have to, but you have to now. You have to now, period. Uh, Which... Hey, Rand makes comments later about, like, public proclamations saying if this guy... This guy has agreed to be publicly executed if he doesn't do the thing that I said. Which is not true, but definitely plays into this idea that he is, like, a destroyer of how things were. Yeah, I mean, we get more of this... Tyra nobles are the worst stuff when Rand announces that their armies are on the move and they just immediately start chanting that Ilian shall fall. They didn't even wait to hear what he was going to say. Yeah. Although, to be fair... And they were, like, dancing around and, like, celebrating, kissing each other. It's like, yes, we're gonna go to war. Yeah. Like, they were about ten seconds away from the orgy beginning. And luckily he stopped that. Uh, at some point in here, I... Sadly, don't have it pulled out when, but I assume it was at the end of this. Because I think Moraine knows that Perrin and Fail are not around. She's like, they're probably hanging out together instead of being in this room where they were supposed to be. And Egwene says, you say it as if you don't believe it, 
They love each other, Moraine. Can't you see that? Can't you even recognize a human emotion when you see one? <laughs> and like, absolute savagery from Egwene. Just call your teacher and the person who's like, the person who you exist at her behest in this context. Just imply that she can't feel human emotion. Egwene's the worst and I like her right now. Uh, so Rand finally arrives with his Aiel, and it's great. The Aiel are, like, veiled for killing, and Rand is cradling the colander. Uh, so seeing him from an outside perspective, uh, from Moraine, lets us experience this so that each new pronouncement layers on top of each other, and Rand, like, actually does sound like a half-mad king. So yeah, he says, Tyr is going to war, someone is uttering the phrase, let the orgy begin, and he cuts them off and says, we're actually going to Kyrian, we're going to end the civil war, there's a lot of money to be made, so you all can be happy, but also, it would be great if people would stop dying in a civil war. Uh, and also, he's going, quote-unquote, away, and he plunges Kalendor back into the stone. Can we just put this all-powerful thing back? Yeah. I'm It'll just, be safe, I promise. I'm just gonna put this back. Kalendor kind of breaks the story, huh? Yeah. yeah. Let's just have him put it back where he found it for a second. Yeah, I think we made Kalendor too strong. Sure hope he doesn't come across any other Sa'angriel that are even stronger in this section. Wink, yeah. wink. This just feels pretty weak. Yeah. Like... You just wrote the last book without really thinking about how much how much of the rest of the series you still have. And now Rand is just sort of randomly throwing away. <laughs> randomly. Yeah. Throwing randomly away a shot. Thro- Essentially. It's yeah. just... it's It doesn't make sense. No. It's... There's... Um, the way that I... We've discussed that the number of planned books changed as time went on. But even thinking about, okay, if it was supposed to end at book six, like Rand running around with Kalendor for three books is still absurd. (laughs) He does quote a prophecy in a bit about somebody pulling the sword out and how that person will be the one to follow after. Which, hey, we finally get a prophecy that doesn't pay itself off, like, in this book. Also, Rand does some George R. R. Martin shit during his proclamations that feel completely superfluous. It's like, why are we spending page count on this? On manipulating the nobles? Individual nobles, there's like ten individual names of people that we don't care about. Yeah, like, none of these nobles are ever going to be important again. They just need to be called out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it's to show that, like, Rand is no longer completely an idiot. He's, like, figuring out how to play the game. No pun intended. Politics, Rand. Um, So as Rand leaves, Moraine and Egwene catch up with him, and they discuss the plan for the bit, and he still isn't saying where he's actually going, uh, but he does, like, trip for a second at Egwene saying, Oh, me? I'm going to Roideon. He's like, oh, interesting. 
he did leave a trap on Kalidor so that no one but him can touch it. And then he says, Radeon, weird, I'm going there. What a coinkydink. Um, there is a little moment in here between him and Egwene that I really liked. Yeah, they reminisce on their childhoods for a second, and Maureen is like, stop, stop that right now. Yeah, stop being a person. You have to destroy the Dark One. <clears throat> so Rand says, do you remember swimming in the Waterwood? He said quietly. I used to float on my back in a pool and think the hardest thing I'd ever have to do was plow a field, unless maybe it was shearing sheep, shearing from sunup till bedtime, hardly stopping to eat until the clip was in. Spinning, Egwene said. I hated it worse than scrubbing floors. Twisting the threads makes your fingers so sore. You didn't, uh, you didn't take a lot of drama, did you? All right. Anyway, yeah, there's a, it's a nice little moment between the two of them. It And Maureen's like, stop. Yeah, it might be the last one they have. I don't remember, but I'm pretty certain that it is. Great. Yeah. Uh, so chapter 22, Out of the Stone. Wow, I think all three of these chapters reference the stone. Great. Uh, Rand and his entourage are leaving Tyr. Uh, it's him, Moraine, Aegy, Matt, Lan, and all of the hundreds of Aiel, along with their spoils of war. Including Avienda, which is where we get the bit of discussion about Elaine and her letters. Yeah. Um, Bion. Letter um, time. I don't remember what exactly brought this up, but um, I was talking to Tyler about this where while Rand essentially understood that she had to go and so wasn't going to stop her because he was respecting her decisions, but because of nonsense... She gets upset that he didn't try to stop her. But at the same time, that's kind of how society raises it in the romantic gesture would to be, no, don't leave. I can't be without you. And then even though knowing it will do nothing in the end, it's the performance value of the romantic act in which in their society is how people, a man and a woman, may perform in love because it's just something you do. It's it's definitely not the right thing. And by respecting her space, like he was a being a good human being. But remember, in this world, it's like but he wasn't men and being women a romance are, novel yeah, protagonist. Yeah, men and women are distinctly different, and they need to perform their roles. So, what's extra funny about this is that in me questioning why it was weird, Bion and I did this. Like, sitting on the couch, I distinctly remember I pretty much, like, accidentally took Rand's side. I was like, yeah, but she has to go. Why would you try and stop her? Bion was like, yeah, but you're supposed to tell her not to leave. And it was only, like, it's, afterwards that I was like, oh, we just, well, I don't, we did the well, thing. And it's a fine Bion, line. When you, when you say supposed to, you don't mean as in, like, really should have. You mean as in that was the expectation. The implication. No, um, yeah, it's 
it's it's kind of those unwritten rules like where guys ask the girls out guys pay for the thing the guy's gonna protect and be more outwardly expressive and be like no you can't do that because you know like women have to obey their fathers and then their husbands and then their sons that's how things work um and so it's not necessarily right but especially if she's a princess these rules and expectations exist and so how she understands things to be within this developing relationship she's hurt because he doesn't do that and she doesn't know to communicate that because in this world men and women are treated as having completely different languages and powers and understandings and so rather than resolving it by having a real conversation uh, they both have their own ideas of what is right and expectations, and so it falls apart. Yeah, and this is definitely one of those women are so wacky, am I right, moments. And it's like, no, if you just had a serious conversation about what is happening, everything would be solved. And I was honestly kind of surprised that... Serious conversations between characters in the Wheel of Time. Communication. Like- where everyone really knows what's going on. You're reading the wrong series. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where it perpetuates the boys are so silly and women they're so crazy, you know? It it perpetuates that and um it doesn't need to be and it definitely shouldn't be a male female thing. And so I was actually kind of surprised when Tyler didn't recognize this because he's the romancy one and I'm the one to forget his birthday and our anniversary and the other anniversary. Multiple years running. Multiple years running. Um, but at the same time, I guess I end up being relationship advice to more people. So that's how I know that this thing is a thing. But yeah, it's just an example of hetero nonsense because it's in a patriarchal society that we live in and the author lives in and it's reflected in this writing because it is such a gender binary society sorry i kind of tuned out all i heard was women lull (laughs) (laughs) anyways anyways uh yeah the letters will continue to be a thing and they and Avienda's totally on Elaine's side. Yeah. Avienda's good. Uh, Avienda? Avienda's like, why aren't you into Enchico sleeping with your 16-year-old girlfriend? I mean, she's... She's just cool. Avienda's cool. And all the ladies should have their own consensual, non-monogamous relationship without the useless male insert that is Rand. You know how... Leandrin got called out for not having solidarity. Uh-huh. Avienda has all of the solidarity. We'll get to it. Yeah. Uh, so they finally arrive at the portal stone, which BT dubs is how they're getting there. Rand says that they're taking a portal stone, and most of the people are like, a portal stone? Are you sure? That's kind of weird. And Matt starts, like, crying. <laughs> Like, no, please, daddy, not like this. I found this chapter kind of funny because Rand's like, yeah, it's here. We're going to do it. Everyone's like, are you sure? That doesn't seem real. You know, this is a lot of people, right? It's not just you and like your best friend. It's like a whole lot of people. Yeah. He's like, don't worry. I have a little fat man in my pocket. The love affair begins. Yeah. The fat man tur angriel in his pocket. Hey, is that a fat man on grill in your pocket, or are you? The anyway, reborn. 
Whoa. Uh, so they arrive at the portal stone, and there's a lot of nice flavor in picking the right symbol and how exasperated Moraine is with the process. Matt flips a coin. Yeah, Rand is basically like, I don't know, I'll figure it out when we get there. And then they get there, and he's trying to pick between a few, and Matt's like, we'll just flip this coin. Rand's like, seems good to me. And Moraine starts crying in the background. Well, actually, this isn't how it works. I, I pulled it out. Uh, Matt says, I'm lucky sometimes, Rand. Let my luck choose. Head, the one that points to your right. Flame, the other. What do you say? This is the most ridiculous, Egwene began, but Moraine silenced her with a touch on the arm. So Moraine is the one taking him the most seriously, because this is sort of the first time that Matt has divulged his lucky boy powers. Mm. Fair She's enough. like, does he have a gimmick now? <laughs> finally, he serves a purpose. Did he finally get his gimmick? And we're like, not until chapter 27. It's a better gimmick. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... The one thing that I do like here, I mean, I like all of it. The thing that I like most in this little bit is that Matt tosses the coin, grabs it, and has it on his hand covered, and Rand just reaches out and touches the symbol that it get that got picked by the coin. Like, he doesn't Tavarin. even have to know. Yeah, Tavarin. He can just feel it. It's really cool that he's like, oh, it was this one. I can, he can just feel that the pattern is pulling him towards that one. He's such Let's a Mary hope I Stu. don't. Mary, Mary Sue. Gary Stu. Gary Stu. I mean, he, he, he screws up a lot. I feel like the Gary Stu thing is like when the plot revolves around you without justification, whereas Rand is like justified by the reality of the book. Like the fabric of reality, the literal fabric of reality is justifying itself in him being the main character. We'll get to it. I think the Gary Stu thing implies that you don't... that, like, your flaws are only flaws in concept and not in practice, and everybody loves you the most, and A, people don't love Rand the most, and B, he suffers many consequences for his flaws. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Chapter 23, Beyond the Stone. This shift in pacing is like going to light speed. Yeah. Like, we spent 340 pages in the same place, and then we literally don't spend any time traveling all the way across the world, and we're immediately into, like, the most major set piece of the entire book. Yeah, Rand has traveled basically across a third of the planet in one pages. <laughs> Perrin is going to travel across most of the continent in like two chapters and I think the next chapter with Elena and the Nave is like hey we're here in Tanchico <laughs> like I guess Jordan got tired of writing and then they traveled through the grass so was I Yeah, I feel like I could just copy paste from his previous ones though and there it'd be do you think if someone just copied a couple chapters of travel out of the earlier books and pasted it in here, you wouldn't even notice? Yeah. Wow. I'd skim so it with skim the same disdain. What if it was different characters? <laughs> you notice, or would you just be like, yeah, okay. I'd be like, I must I have missed something. <laughs> I guess he's doing the point of view thing again. I wish it was more distinct when he did point of view changes. Uh, so 23, Beyond the Stone. 
Uh, so they arrive in the waste, uh, unharmed, and they didn't even take any points of mental trauma this time. Uh, Rand's little fat man Angriel wasn't actually enough, but he still got the job done, and Moraine was like, you'll probably die if you do that again. I really wish you wouldn't do that. Lan, like, pours a bunch of bottles of water all over the girls, and in the background, the Aiel are dealing with, like, hey, why did all these people show up? Hey, can this guy go to Radeon? He's my brother. He's great. Anyway, I should go to Radeon, too. Uh, there's a lot of, like, suddenly wise ones are talking. I'm going to leave most of this, or I'm going to turn to Bion and hope that I can leave most of this to them. Because, like, suddenly having a bunch of characters introduced in their own culture and their own ways is kind of Bion's thing more than mine. It was really overwhelming um, with the pacing change. Because I'm going, I'm so bored. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. And then suddenly, surprise! There's new people, and they have roles, and they have different words for things, and their names mean different things. What do their names mean? What do they do? It was, it was a lot. Um, In a good way? I don't know. The wise ones are really scary, you know? <laughs> like, the way they are and the way they interact with everybody, it's like, oof. What? What? Why are you it, like this? It's all and, very Dune. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, who are the wise ones inspired by? Like, what's the real world reflection of these people? And I mean, they're literally like the sandwiches from Dune. Yeah. I don't what know. Are they, what are they called? The Bene Gesserit. Uh, yes. I hate that I knew that. <laughs> Yeah. Also, I really enjoyed the old tongue and what made it more amusing for myself is I remembered that technically our current society is one of the previous ways. So what amuses me is to think the old tongue is just being memes. Um, Because it gives some brevity into this nonsense. It's future cockney rhyming slang. Yeah, yeah. They're just like, what does yeet mean? And so... That that that's what I took from this is that the wise ones are scary but fascinating. I don't understand the significance of Roydian. I don't understand why all these Aiel are conflicted. I had a lot of questions. I was like, Yeah, Bion I mean, was texting me a lot last did night. The, did the next few chapters at least help with that? Or I need to clarify. I need to clarify with Tyler a lot because. I think we're going to work through some of it, too. Yeah, we, we need to work through some of it, because I read it, and then I read the summary of it, and then I tried to read it again. There's a lot there. there yeah, this is, it's the thing that I was like, this is, when we were, like, starting book two, I was just finishing this section, and I was like, we might need a whole episode about these three chapters. Because it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Aiel are intense, uh, and I wouldn't want also, to be one. intense. <sighs> Christ. <sighs> Anyways, Kooladin sucks. Kooladin sucks. Muradin seems fine, except for the part where he kills himself to eyeballs. death. Yeah. Uh, so Rand and Matt beseech the Wise Ones for the right to enter. Rand's is fine. He's like, <laughs> no, he's like, listen, 
I'm the dragon reborn. I am he who comes with the dawn. My I'm Aeel by blood. My mother was an Aeel. I have to go into Roideon. This is how it works. And the wise ones are like, yeah, I guess. And then Matt's like, I'm going to. And like, <laughs> I really wish you wouldn't. <laughs> what a mad lad. Yeah. And Rand's like... Also note, Amis is like, no, your mother wasn't Aeel. Your father was. And yeah. Egwene is like, I'm in, I'm dizzy right now. Yeah. Egwene's like, I'm literally crying and shaking right now. Uh, yeah. Matt seems kind of rude to me in this scenario. I was like, this is literally their cultural thing, and you just think you can wander in, lucky boy? Really? Well, I mean, a bunch of magical snake people told him he had to. Yeah. yeah. If he so doesn't better, really... he a- better he ask permission, I guess. Well... I don't know. I do say all the time, better to ask forgiveness than permission. But I guess Matt doesn't follow that. Anyways, the wise ones are like, fine. I guess the dragon reborn. Well, they don't care about the dragon reborn. I guess the uh, the Karakarn ends all uh, ends all tradition. So might as well. Yeah. Matt like pulls out a hundred knives from his coat, and then they start to go towards the city. And then yeah, Matt and Rand actually have some friendly banter and chemistry in these couple of chapters, which is unusual. Yeah, they don't usually get that. And it's really nice to see the two of them just like, yeah, there's a, it's in the next chapter, but it starts off with them both being like, Rand saying to Matt, hey, are you sure you want to come? Stuff might get wild. Matt's like, yeah, I gotta go. Are you sure your head isn't already too big? You gotta be the Aiel savior too? Rand's like, <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. They're actually they're actually friends in these chapters. Yeah. I like that Rand I mean, not it's so easy and obvious to be like Perrin is the slow good boy and Matt's the quick trickster prank lad and Rand exists as the in between. But scenes where Rand gets to be with one of them and is a clear reflection of that one is really good. I just wish there were more scenes of all three of them in the same room being friends. I want to see that dynamic. Uh, Just let them be friends! Just let them be friends. Uh, So after this, Aviende gets summoned to the Wise Ones. Yeah, this is an Egwene POV chapter, by the way, somehow. Uh, so Avienda, it turns out, can channel, and she'll be as strong as Eggy one day. Uh, this is also when Egwene figures out how to tell if somebody can channel. She's like, I've been feeling this around certain people, this kinship, but now I know what it means. Being Avienda's suffering, though. Oh, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, also being a wise one is suffering. Like, if so many people are running away and having to be dragged back, there's something wrong. And the whole idea of accepting your duty and your responsibility. I mean, obviously there's individualistic versus collectivist societies and cultures and whatnot, but that's cruel. I mean, to some extent, Avienda might kill herself if she isn't trained. Yeah. But. Yeah, so Avienda is instructed to put down the spears and become a wise one by also traveling to Radeon, which. She does, begrudgingly. And then she gets naked. What is with the getting naked? I actually sent this text to Tyler. I was like, why does every ritual involve nudity? Stop. 
And, and like, I guess it's also why does it have to be nudity in front of people who are not nude? That power dynamic is not cool. To be at least kind of fair, the Aiel have way less issue with being nude. They, like, commonly have uh, completely platonic, like, mixed gender nudity. Anyways. Yeah. But still. Yeah, it's still not great. So once Avianda's gone, the wise ones are like, hey, everybody that isn't Egwene, Moraine, and Lan, go home. And then they invite um, Egwene and Moraine into the tents for water and shade. And they begin to discuss Giato. I'm not Very in-depth. Yeah, I'm not going to write about it here except to sum it up with a quote from Eggy. The Aiel were insane. That was all there was to it. Which... We get like we get uh, some of the one of the wise ones telling a two page long anecdote, and this that... is this is the short version. Yeah, she tells like this two page long story that ends with all like the wise ones rolling around on the floor laughing, and it uses so much jargon that we're just confused as as just as confused as Egwene is, which you know works. Yeah, but why we spend so much page time on it? Yeah. Because his pacing is extended forever. Beyond, did you have any thoughts on Giotto? I was just like, why? <laughs> yeah, this this two-page description of Giotto is the short version, and it still does the thing that they mentioned, where they're like, I once spent a whole month trying to explain it to somebody, to a wetlander, and they ended up with more questions than they started with. It's like, yeah, well, your two-page thing didn't really fix that problem. <laughs> There's, It's so complex. And uh, Avienda will spend the rest of the book trying to explain it to Rand. Moraine also goads the wise ones here, sort of giving us a little lesson on translating the old tongue with, like, what Aiel means and the servants and the gen Aiel. And it's good, but she's clearly doing it because she's, like, tired of not getting answers. She has so Moraine is tired of not getting answers. Seems like karma. Yeah. What I was saying when I interrupted you was um, I got a lot of Judaism vibes here. Also with Old Testament and Christianity and then the Torah and whatnot. And so it made me wonder about the uh, religious orientation of the author. And then to, to what extent those feelings will continue. Because, I mean, Aiel are crazy powerful, but then obviously they have some really weird revelations coming on in the next chapters. But I don't know. Everybody says light instead of saying, oh God, or something. And so, I don't know. It was just weird for me. The the religious vibes I got. Uh, It says he was a devout Christian. Especially with, like, the waiting for something. Mm. And, uh, yeah. Waiting for the return to deliver them. Yeah. Yeah, congrats. You've pulled back the curtain. The I've yeah. referred to Rand as Jesus a couple times. and like, Yeah. Maybe that's Anyways. the theme of the story. Uh, so, side note in here. Um, it's good to know that Jordan had it all p- so planned out. Because one of the, as I was rereading um, 
I don't know why I didn't pull it out the or why I didn't highlight it the first time I was going through. But there is a sentence in this chapter that describes how the entire series ends, which is crazy to me. Anyway, the actual story. Uh, once Moraine is gone from the tents, the wise ones begin She's to She's going to Roydian, by the way. We did that. You did that. Oh my god, you're totally right. I didn't write that down at all. But yes, she's going to Roydian. Uh, she has to for some reason, I guess. Everyone goes to Roydian here. Well, not Egwene, but yes. <laughs> and not Cooladin. Not Cooladin. Yeah, that guy definitely does not go to Roydian. That's sort of a plot point. Uh, the wise ones begin to tell Egwene about dreamwalking. It's not connected to the power, which we know because we know a dreamwalker who doesn't use the power. And people used to be able to enter Teleran Riyadh in the flesh, but they don't anymore because people did evil stuff with it, and so now it's evil. Thinking emoji. That's kind of the end of the chapter. It's just a like two or three paragraphs right at the end about here's your little crash course on dreamwalking. Yep. Because it's an Egwene chapter. Yep. Hi. So Egwene has to constantly ask questions. Well, it's not bad. At least somebody's asking questions. Yeah, she's just, like, interrupting people to ask questions about unrelated topics, which matches with Egwene, because Egwene wants to know everything so that she can be the best, which is a character trait whose positive or negative alignment depends only on how it's used. I guess we'll find out how it's used. Anyways. Anyways. Chapter 24. Ruidion. So Matt and Rand are outside the wall of mist surrounding Ruidion, psyching themselves up and doing the banter where they try and talk each other out of it. Which is good. Some good banter. Uh, they eventually decide to just go in. And once they make their way through the mist, they find a massive, grand city uh, filled with palaces and spires, but most of it is only partially completed. Uh, it looks like most of the work was stopped like three quarters of the way through. This sort of has a Dark Souls vibe. Yeah, it's almost... yeah. And it's definitely... they're being creeped out by the giant empty city, which is one of those... Um, it's one of those things where, like, public places or places that read as public to your mind are weird when there's nobody in them, um, which is a known, like, phenomenon. Like, airports freak people out when there's nobody in them. So they make their way deeper into the city until they're at the center. Um, there's a forest of small objects littering the ground and all surrounding a massive tree, Avendasora, the Tree of Life. Uh, they take a rest underneath it and sort of ruminate on what's going on at this point in the story uh, before Rand says that it's time to move on, and Matt begrudgingly agrees. Uh, Rand heads towards the glass columns, and Matt stays after being like forced into agreeing, but it's really good because Rand's like, whatever happens, do not come in behind me. And that's like, 
yeah, I won't come in behind you. And then as soon as Rand's gone, he's like, okay, well, I'll wait an hour and then I'll definitely not go in behind him. Wink, wink. Like, Matt's such a bloody hero. He even flips a coin and it lands on its side. Mm-hmm. And uh, we note two statuettes, a man and a woman, each holding a crystal sphere aloft in one hand. Hmm. What could it be? You tell us. I don't know, some magic stuff. Wow. There you have it. Some magic nonsense that led to the fall of something, and it's all gender. Wow. I've solved it. That's what it is. Uh, So while Matt's waiting, he notices a twisted redstone doorway. I want answers. I want more answers. Uh, He decides he's... You know, he might as well kill some time by heading into another dimension <laughs> and goes through the door. Uh, the person he finds this time is very different. Yeah, um, not snake people. No. Uh, last time they were distinctly snake-like, and this time they're more of a fox situation. Matt is led through a more impossible space that's very PT-esque. Yeah. He was told that I will take you to where you may find what you need. You know, nothing about answers. No, although Matt doesn't really pick up on that. So he eventually reaches a chamber with, I think it said, eight of the fox people in it. Uh, And they say that agreements will be made. Uh, Matt starts yelling questions at them, and they just silently stand there. And he... Goes off on some very dangerous tangents. Yeah, he sort of does the exact same thing he did with the questions, (laughs) where he... With the questions he, like, asked one and then asked two follow-ups, he just starts screaming about, like, okay, you know what I want? I want these... He says, if I had my way, I would want these holes filled. Holes in his head. Yeah. But at least answers to my questions might fill in some of my future. You have to answer. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Done. I want to be free of the Aes Sedai and the power and all of this. Done. And I, I want to go home. Done. Done. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, but you shouldn't have asked us for something without telling us what the price was. So we're going to take the price that we think is appropriate. And then suddenly Matt both can't breathe and also can't see. And then he's unconscious. For a couple chapters. Yeah. I feel like Matt should have listened to more fairy tales when he was younger about not just sassing and yelling at... I mean, he literally referenced a fairy tale earlier in this book about a doorway that you go into and gives you magical objects based on your needs. He knows the story. Yeah. He's just rude. I think what Matt needs is like like one of those child leashes. It's like a teddy bear backpack. Yeah, or like a monkey. But it's a leash. And then... Uh. So Rand should just be holding it, and then later on in the story, Rand can just pass it off to someone, and whoever the most competent person in the room is can just hold Matt's leash. They can be his impulse control. Well, he clearly doesn't have it. So, chapter 25, The Road to the Spear. Stuff's gonna get weird. Err. Err. I mean, at this point, going through a a twisted redstone Turong real doorway and having weird animal people do weird stuff to you is like 
pedestrian. Well, what else would you expect? What else would you expect? This is some new stuff. <laughs> so Rand is walking through these rows of glass columns and sees Muradin, the would-be chief who went in ahead of him, Kuladin's brother. Deciding to move forward, Rand takes a step and... Mandine is moving toward... Uh, wait, how fanciful would you like me to get with this? He is now someone else. He is now someone else. He's inhabiting another body. He's not piloting it, but he is experiencing the thoughts and feelings of someone else during a specific snippet of time. Yeah, and he's not, like, riding along in the back or anything. He just becomes them. Yeah. Which is important to how he reacts. Yeah, he just... Yeah, he is that person, but he doesn't have any agency in what's happening. So Mandine moves towards Rudion, which is still being constructed, and it's less constructed than it is right now, and there's no wall of mist. Uh, after receiving a message via his wife that he must agree to whatever is asked of him down there or be destroyed. Uh, the Gen Aiel and the Aesidae are down there, uh, still building the city. They implore the prospective chiefs to come with them and learn why they do not carry swords and the history of the Aiel people. This is a, a pretty cool framing device because what they're being asked to do is what Rand is doing right now. Yeah. And um, it, during it, this meeting, uh, one of the Aes Sedai makes the prophecy that the Aiel referenced later, saying, The stone that never falls will fall to announce his coming, of the blood but not raised by the blood, blah blah blah. Uh, he will take you back and he will destroy you. And it's sort of cool seeing the moment of a new prophecy happening and the context of it being the Gen Aiel creating this ritual of clan chiefdom makes it make sense why it's remembered. Yeah. Yeah, this is like the catalyst point for a bunch of stuff. And as we'll find out, this the things that happen to you in Roideon are important for people and kind of forms the backbone of a lot of stuff in Aiel culture. Yeah, it's just sort of like every momentous event in Aiel history back to back. Yeah. So Rand is farther... Rand is now back as Rand, and he's farther into the columns than a single step would be able to take him. Uh, he's catching up to Muradin. He steps forward again, and he's Roderick, Mandine's great-great-grandfather. Uh, he leads a group that's filling up on water, and they're uh, sort of doing a trailing guard over a group of the Gen Aiel. Their intent is to move east, past the Dragon Wall, which means that they are currently still in the wetlands. Also worth noting that, based on location, that probably means that the people that are giving them water are Kyrian, which makes sense as to why the Kyrians are allowed to not die in the waste until they make a big oopsie-whoopsie. Yeah, this is when Kyrian was just a place with log walls. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah, so this is... The first vision was, like, way, 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 way back, like thousands of years. The second vision is, like, a couple generations before that, and just that far back is enough for them to have not been in the wastes. Yeah, I, I didn't count... Uh, but I will. I'll be on talks. At this point in time, 
are the Gen Aiel the only Aiel which exist? No. Or or have there already been formation of the Gen Aiel versus the Aiel? So as we go backwards in time, we see sort of like the schisms between the Aiel and the traveling folk and the Aiel and the Gen Aiel. And this is like the furthest point along that timeline. So this is when there is the Gen Aiel and the Aiel, but this is before the Aiel don't consider the Gen as true Aiel anymore. The real concept of whoever's the truest Aiel during this whole process of reading confused me a whole bunch. Because at so, some point it sounded like the Gen Aiel were the true Aiel, except then the other Aiel were like, nah, you're not. You're a Gen Aiel. You're a filthy Gen Aiel. And so, then we see it otherwise, and then they're like, actually the true Aiel in the end. So the main way to keep track of it is that there's like two main tenets of the Aiel right after the breaking of the world. The first one is keeping to the way of the leaf and passivity. And the second one is to take the Terangrials from the Aes Sedai to somewhere safe, quote-unquote somewhere safe. And the level to which someone is true Aiel depends upon their level of commitment to those two ideals. And we see people like splitting off from them to different degrees in these two chapters. Yeah. Um, so it is... Uh... It doesn't say when the breaking occurs, but uh, I'm sorry, it totally does. Eight generations back from the first vision, so it's five before Roderick, which is the character that we are now seeing um, filling up on water. But so you weren't th- listening to Beyond's confusion at all. No, I was math. listening to A, I was listening to Beyond's confusion, and B, uh, as soon as Beyond read this section, I was getting like multiple texts saying, wait, what's going on? Yeah. So, so so we'll uh, be careful to delineate exactly where everyone splits off from each other in these chapters. Yeah. Um, but it is safe to say that the Genial in the end, are the ones that stick the most to the original ideals. Yeah. So, the Gen Aiel that are talked about in modern times, and the ones being talked about here, are still the same one, and those Gen Aiel are the ones that are trying to find the safe place. And my, I think, they're also passive? Yeah. There's... Um, there's Yeah, because there's, like, two splittings of the passive group. Like, the passive group splits between who is following the second tenant, which is following the Aes Sedai, and those who don't, but they both keep to the first tenant, and then later on, one of those groups splits again into the Aiel and the Gen Aiel. We'll get to it. Yeah. And does this differentiation occur before the breaking, or is it all post-breaking? Post-breaking all post-breaking because we see it in these two chapters. Yeah, only the very last vision that Rand has is pre-breaking. Okay. One of them is mid-breaking, like at the start of the breaking, and then... One of them is directly pre-breaking. It's like, the breaking is occurring, because, like, everything's on fire and people are abandoning the way of the leaf. And it takes multiple generations of the various names of Aiel to get to the waste. Correct. It takes... 
uh, whatever I just said, five generations, asterisk, that some These of people early, technically live like 160 years. At least, yeah. One of them says he's 63, prime of his life, still too young for gray. I'm currently 24, and I have some amount of gray. So, like... Yeah, worth noting, I looked at the timeline. Luz Therentelemon was 400 years old at the time of the breaking. Yeah. Uh, I... There are reasons why, but, like, pre-breaking, people could live... The strongest people, which would have been, like, Luz Theron and, um, like, one or two others, would have been able to live to, like, seven or eight hundred before dying of natural causes. Is this because of the magical dude and lady magic? I mean, yes, the power well, also they had longer. They also had, like, magical technology, so I assume that would extend to medicine. Yeah, um... Yeah, the power always makes you live longer, but I'm saying that like later on they will talk about a reason that people who use the power now don't live that long. And it's partially a technology thing and partially just sort of a general, like, situational thing. But they'll talk about it later. So Rand steps out of the vision and he's standing still and is sort of shocked to see the Aiel before they're in the waste. Morden is extra shocked. Yeah. Uh, he takes a step closer, and then he's young Jordan, Roderick's grandfather. So we are now already, like, five generations back from that first vision of Roideon. Yeah. There's a... It's nice that we did get a bit of Jordan as a very old man in the last flashback, so we get, like, some connective tissue so we're not, like, totally lost. Yeah, I think the first one is the only one that doesn't contain any... Uh, Reference to the one from the last vision. Yeah. Yeah, or, like, the one from the next vision, I yeah. guess. Uh, the only... And then one of them is actually the same person twice, but we'll get to that. Uh, so he's Jordom when he's young. A group of the... Okay, so he is, like, standing watch with a long spear and a group of five Gen Aiel arrive at the at his watch. Uh, he leads them back to the camp, and they're asking for help from Jordam's group to retrieve some people that were kidnapped from them. So Jordam's group are Aiel Aiel, yeah. and there's some Gen Aiel asking for help. Yeah, and I think... This might be the first time that somebody says, like, you only say Jenail to mock us. Yeah, he basically says, you can stay, but if you stay, you have to help. And if you help, that means you're going to kill people. Have a spear. And so some of the people accept, including one of the women. And he basically says, hey, if you're a woman fighting, you can't wear those skirts. You're going to have to wear pants. And also the spear will be shorter and also have a shield. Congrats, he invented Aiel. Yep, we also invented the, well, the first maiden, yeah. maiden of the spear. Yeah, because she says that's her husband now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're my husband now. Uh, she also reveals to us that the Gen Aiel still have three cuttings of Avendasora to plant, at which point Rand steps out of the vision. He is now only one step behind Muradin, and he moves closer. Uh, we are now Lewin, Jordam's father. 
leading a small group to, as we, like, figure out before they actually start, non-violently retrieve a group of women that were kidnapped from the group. This flashback is where we see the first departure from the Way of the Leaf. Yeah, this is the splitting of the Aiel and the Gen Aiel. So they wear veils, and they uh, aren't intending to do any violence whatsoever. Uh, But the plan immediately goes wrong, (laughs) Uh, and they end up killing all four of the kidnappers and losing one of their own. Um, It's not intended that this happens. I mean, it's like during the scuffle, they're like intending to do violence, but they're not intending to kill anybody. Still breaks the way of the leaf. Still breaks the way of the leaf, but it's at least like we did a bad um, so Lewin takes a spear and says that because it has a use besides killing people, it's fair game to take it with him, which worth noting is not how the way of the leaf works now. Uh, so they arrive back at the wagons and once the girls tell about how this group of men uh, killed the kidnappers, they're cast out for breaking the covenant. They are told that they are no longer Aiel and that they need to hide their faces. Yeah. I am still Aiel, Lewin shouted, but they did not look back. He thought he heard Luca crying. The wind rose, picking up dust, and he veiled his face. I am Aiel. That's pretty damn good. (laughs) Do you get it? I got a little chills. So, well, I mean, I'm partially, like, making sure that you're following. (laughs) I didn't just mean it in the way that I usually mean it. Oh. Like, actual factual. Yeah. Yeah. We might talk through it again at the end. um, Just to, like, make sure that we're solid on what happened. He got rejected from the group because he broke the leaf rule, even though he tried to justify it because he was like, this weapon doesn't only kill people. I... Sorry, I wasn't asking, like, do you understand the literal events that occurred on the page? Oh. I mean, like, do you understand that this is building into, like, Aiel carry spears, they wear veils, they don't follow the way of the leaf, but they are Aiel, and the Gen Aiel are Aiel, but nobody remembers what makes the Gen Aiel the true Aiel, except for the Gen Aiel, and then they're all dead. So, when people say that the Gen are the only true, like, they are the true clan but they are also the clan that isn't and like we're seeing it's right yeah so they're simultaneously defined by what they're not as well as what they are well no i mean they are a clan of aiel but they're not aiel like everybody else is and they're the true aiel they also no longer exist yeah they are the clan that is not because they're literally all dead yeah oops yeah uh so I think what confuses me as well is the chronological order of all these. We'll go back through it. It's linear, just backwards. Yeah. I I don't like it being backwards, sir. We'll go through it linear but forwards at the end, once we have it all and we can say this, then this, then this. Flip it and reverse it. Yeah. Um, So Rand is now just the one step behind uh, Muradin. He's losing it. Who's freaking out he is i know i say this a lot but this time he is literally crying and shaking (laughs) yeah it's an important note 
to realize that this stuff is absolutely world-shaking to an Aiel. Yeah, because Aiel are all about the fighting and killing and testing, and the threefold land is to make us better. And that their very way of life is a betrayal of their duty. Yeah. the This is why the wise ones say stuff like, you go in and you either come out a chief or you don't come out because you've gone crazy. Is like, the thing that is happening to Muradin happens to you, you just go crazy and kill yourself. Because you can't handle the idea that the Aiel were pacifists. So is this why the wise ones were like, sorry, Avienda, you gotta burn your spear, husband? No, that's different. Okay. Because to become a wise one, they just burn all the things she's worked hard no, for. Well, that's she no longer be a maiden. Okay. She, she also has to do this vision quest. Yeah, and worth noting, the um, they go through twice, the wise ones. They, just in case they forgot? No, there's two different things that the wise ones do. They do this, which the clan chiefs do, but then they also have a separate test. That, like, shows their own future. Yeah, the the thing with the burning the spears was just because there was no other way to make her stop being a maiden. But, like, if you were chosen as a wise one and you weren't a maiden, then you would just not, you wouldn't have any spears to burn. You have to symbolically burn things away from you and be naked in a ritual. Only if you're not willing to put them down, which Avienda wasn't. That was the idea, was that you have to, like, break her of her rebelliousness from being a wise one because she has to be a wise one. I don't know why you're frowning. I, it just makes me uncomfortable. Okay. All right. Uh, so chapter 26, the dedicated. Also, whoa, the chapter splits when we go to before the schism of the Aiel. And as of this chapter, we are only seeing the Aiel that are dedicated to their ideals. Whoa. There's a reason this is divided into two chapters. Yeah. Also, the dedicated is a phrase that will continue to be relevant. There's lots of details. Yeah. Uh, Rand is now a Don, only like 15 to 20 years before Lewin is cast out of the Aeol. So he is clutching his grandchildren close, uh, looking down at the end of a raid on his group with his wife and the last of his children either dead or enslaved. He goes down to confront the remainder of his group, who are now all coming back, um, saying that he will persevere in keeping the relics of the Aes Sedai safe, and that those who leave are no longer Aiel. Uh, They are lost ones, even though they still follow the way of the leaf. And this is the traveling folk. Yeah, so this is the traveling folk, the Tinkers. Mm -hmm. So everybody is part of the same group. They are the original, they're called the Aiel. Mm -hmm. And then this happens, and some of them say, like, we're still not going to hurt anybody, but the idea that, like, our only goal in life is to find somewhere to keep these things safe, and there's nowhere safe in the world, so we're just walking around carrying stuff and dying for it. Like, no. We're going to go do our own thing. They're now the Tinkers. Yeah. So both the modern Aiel and the modern traveling folk have each abandoned one half of what originally made them Aiel, because the modern Aiel don't follow the way of the leaf, and the modern traveling folk feel no obligation to 
you know, take care of these Aesidae artifacts. So they're two halves of one whole, you could say. I'm tapping my forehead. Look at all these threads in the pattern. It's also why they're allowed in the waste. Yeah. Uh, so Rand is out of the vision. He and Muradin are now side by side, and they step forward into the next vision simultaneously. And Rand is now Jonai in the immediate aftermath of the breaking, leading a large group, including his son, Adan. Yeah, there's all, there's so many details in this section. Like, this uh, part gives us the justification of why Aiel are real good at walking and running. Yeah. <laughs> Fewer people, too. A handful of thousands where there had been tens, but too many for the remaining wagons. No one rode now, save for children too small to walk. So... They're just all real good at walking now. Generations of good, good walkers. Uh, yeah, the world is in complete upheaval. Uh, he mentions that, like, there is an ocean maybe to the south, question mark? Like, it might not still be there. There was last time I checked. Yeah. Um, the blight is expanding, and the Ogier are beginning to experience the longing that uh, Loyal has talked about them having in the aftermath of the breaking. So Rand looks and sees Muradin on the ground beside him, uh, scratching bloody tracks in his face. So Rand steps into the next vision, and he is Jonai again. Uh, but this time he's only 63 years old. Young and hale. An, yeah, young, hale, hardy, the prime of his life. Um, he's making his way to a gathering of the female Aes Sedai, uh, bringing bad news that his father has taken up a weapon, but saying that the Aiel in general are um, committed to continuing to serve, even during this tumultuous time. Um, so the reason that I'm thinking that this is during the breaking is that they talk about like male Aes Sedai maybe never being in another group again. Well, yeah, they talk about how something that just happened, where one of the Hundred Companions, one of the male Aes Sedai, just went and genocided a whole city yeah. because he went crazy. So the breaking is currently happening. Breaking is occurring. This is not a drill. Yeah, so uh, there's there's more to the breaking than just loose there and freaking out for one second. There's yeah, like it a was, whole bunch of other stuff that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's half of the Aes Sedai suddenly going crazy and destroying everything. This is the aftershocks of the traumatic event, which was loose Theron. So, so it's, the, it's the aftershock of the Dark One tainting Sidene. Yeah, so like, loose Theron led the Hundred Companions in an assault on Sheogul, mm -hmm. and they sealed the Dark One with all of the Forsaken, mm -hmm. except they messed up and didn't do a Shamael very good. Oops. And, like, as he was being sealed, the Dark One inflicted the taint on Sidene. And so the men that then continued to channel, which was all of them, because they say that you can't stop yourself from channeling once you know how good it is, all then went crazy. The only ones that could not go crazy were the ones that went to Steadings, where you can't touch the source. But even then, they couldn't resist it forever, so they left and created the Waygates. Mm -hmm. So, like... Worth noting, those big ol' saw angrials with the crystals in their hands were the female Aes Sedai's plan to seal the Dark One. Mm hmm. Thinking 
emoji. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mistakes were made. Kinda. Uh, the green man is also here. Remember him from the Eye of the World? Yeah, there's an actual explanation of what the hell he is. Yeah, and they talk about the creation of the Eye of the World here. How, like, some of the male Aes Sedai that can still be trusted are going to go create it. Jonai is charged with bringing these artifacts somewhere safe and to move until they find that safe place. Yeah, and he's, t- he's complaining about having to load them into wagons, saying that once there would have been other ways to carry them. Joe cars and jumpers, hoverflies and huge show wings. Huh. He's talking about cars and planes. They we had not, those. We, we not medieval boys. No. The Age of Legends was like high-level Magitech. Yeah, because later on, somebody says like, Normally, I would have just had an Ace that I teleport me to wherever I needed to be, but instead, I'm going to get on a plane. So, Rand is back in himself. Beside him, Muradin is, like, scratching out his eyes. And so he takes a step forward. And now we're Jonai's father, Kuman. He is excited to take part in his first singing with the other Aiel, the Ogier, and the Green Man. I think it's right before it starts... He is daydreaming about stories that his great-grandfather used to tell of serving Lanfear before she was evil, and what it was like in the world before they knew what the word war meant. So they do this singing, which is, hey, they're singing a song that seems very important to the Aiel, and it causes things to grow. It's important to the Ogier, too. Gosh, there's an Ogier we know who knows a song of how to grow things. I think the traveling people are looking for a song. (laughs) Yeah, I heard y'all were looking for a song. Let me sing it. A real good one. Yeah, it's a pretty great song. So they finish up the singing, and uh, Kumin overhears a conversation with a soldier, who says that Luztharen has led a strike against Shale Ghoul and the boar is sealed, so that's what we were just talking about. Yeah, there's some interesting talk about how the soldiers feel uncomfortable around non-soldiers because there's literally never been soldiers before, and everyone feels uncomfortable with the idea that there's someone around who will kill. Yeah, who, like, can do violence. And um, I think it's the Ogier says something about, like, oh, so you're done fighting, and then they talk through it, and the soldier seems relieved that... He, like, doesn't have to figure out what his life is now that he has done violence and has to put that away. Like, he still gets to put that question off long enough because there's still Trollocs and Merdral in the world. Yeah, and he acts as if he wonders if he'll be wanted in any of the peace celebrations. Yeah. And hey, speaking of not being wanted here, Kumin is going home. And on his way, he's assaulted by a group of people who say that now that the Forsaken are gone, uh, they can't protect him because Kumin's, uh, what did I say, great-grandfather served Lanfear back before she was evil. So I guess there was some, like, superstition that they all still secretly served the Forsaken. Yeah. And so his great-grandfather gets lynched. Yeah. Tough stuff for my guy, Charn. That's his name. 
Uh, so Rand takes another step forward now that Muradin has scratched out his eyes and is chewing his own tongue out so that he can choke to death on his blood. This is the last vision. Yeah. Um, so Rand is now Charn, Jonai's great-grandfather, young and very much alive. Uh, he's walking down a sidewalk so that he doesn't get run over by the cars, and he's thinking about, like I said, how he'll have to take a plane instead of having an ace I just travel him. So he gets knocked over by some random passerby, and it's shown that the Aiel are held in very high regard. The guy, like, accidentally knocking him down, as soon as he figures out he's an Aiel, is like, oh, sorry, let me call you a cab to wherever you're going. Yeah, it's interesting because they're held in high regard, but also they're held in regard in such a way that you understand that that would be horrifying to a modern Aiel. Yeah, they're very humble about it. Yeah. Um, but also, yes, like you said, the modern Aiel would be displaced. Yes. Um, so, this guy's Ace Sedai, who we already discussed is Lanfear, her name is Marin. She was telling him that she found a new source of the power, one that men and women could both use, and that they were going to tap into it for the first time today. They do so... And something goes wrong. Everybody turns in unison to look at the giant floating sphere that the Aes Sedai apparently inhabit that hangs over the city as it catches fire and explodes and falls to the ground. Explodes in darkness. Yeah. So, thoughts. This is, this is the boar. This is the boar that they just created. And they just unleashed the Dark One. And whatever power they found is bad. So, by trying to ascend beyond their binary magic power source, their arrogance led to the release of the Dark One? I don't know that I would phrase it like that, but you could. Yeah. It's I would instead slightly sorry. troubling, but I don't think Robert Jordan even knew what he was saying with that. No, I would instead read it as like the power that they are tapping into, if it's a reflection of the evil of the Dark One, I think it's saying that anyone can be evil. It doesn't like anybody can tap into that power. So you're flipping the causality. Yeah. I'm trying to present it so that Bion doesn't cry and scream i'm not crying or screaming that's yeah. just the thing i got from it kind of like uh biblic biblical story wise where humans supposedly all used to speak the whole same language until they built a tower to go to heaven or whatever mm -hmm. and then they were cast down for their arrogance and now nobody could understand each other yeah the that's, hubris is yeah gender neutral magic yeah, that that that's the, the 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 tone I got from it in the sense of you're at this amazing technological magical state. You have your men, you have your women, you have your magic, and you have your gendered assigned roles. And you went beyond it, and you've released the dark one. You went a little too plus ultra. How dare you? I would insist. Definitely a way to read it. Yeah, I would instead read it as. If you assume 
if you're as generous to Robert Jordan as possible and say, no, listen, if you're as generous to him as possible because he's at least trying to do the right thing, he's just wrong. But if what he's saying is that men and women each have their own assigned thing and men are better at some things and women are better at others, that's where he's wrong. But from that point on, you know, if you're using the power as a metaphor... The power is best used when it's men and women together. And the intent of accessing this neutral power is that they can climb to even greater heights. And we know that um, Mirren wants to do that because she's crazy and just wants to steal Luz Theron away from that straw-haired hussy. <laughs> but, like, the intent is we're going to become even better people like we're already at our best when we're working together we can become even better at working together by accessing this power but then it turns out that that power doesn't discriminate because it's evil. it's inherently evil so i still think jordan is wrong but at least like internally it's consistent Beyond looks like they're gonna vomit i don't think I have the time, energy, or desire to uh, bullet point with literary evidence as to why I don't agree with your interpretation. I'm again saying, I think he's wrong. But at least if you start from where he's at, I think I could see how you would become, you would come to that conclusion. Also, well, it's just if the thing is the fact that men and women designed to have their own roles so they work together, why would a neutral thing be that bad? Because in this case, the the idea is like, don't try and because if what he's saying is that I, men are I better think, at some. I think what Tyler was getting at is that it's not evil because it's neutral. It's neutral because it's evil. Yeah. Like. Like, anyone can be evil, which is why anyone can access it. But, like, here's my point. If you're starting from men are better at some things, women are better at others, they're best when they work together at the things that they are good at, then it makes sense that the powers are gendered and you cannot cross the line, and that anything that subverts that by having a neutrality would necessarily be evil. And it is evil specifically because it is subverting that. Again, I think that's wrong, but I think that if we're, that like Jordan thinks that and therefore Jordan is internally consistent in this case. Jesse's statement of it's neutral because it's evil as opposed to it's uh, evil because it's neutral makes more sense to me because you're uh I mean that's literally what Tyler said. It was just in fewer words. Yeah, honey, you gotta work on your wordiness. Who are you, Robert Jordan? Say it in fewer words. I mean, um, the number of times that I've referenced the every story needs 200 years of backstory thing in my real life as I'm speaking since we first read that line is embarrassing. <laughs> You're ridiculous to talk to. So now we have the whole timeline. Now we have the whole timeline. It's so, messy. No, it's really not. So, <laughs> okay. 
Age of Legends is occurring. Everything's chill. The Aesid or the uh, Aiel are respected servants of the Aesidai. He mentions that like he serves one of them, but he's going to marry someone else, another Aiel, who's a servant of another Aesidai. He already got permission from Mirren. He's gonna head over there. So like everything's chill with the Aesidai and the Aiel. Nobody knows what war or violence or conflict is. They just have sick magitech. And the Aiel are servants to the magic people. Yes, but they're happy to do it. They're happily enslaved. I'm happy to serve. I'm so overjoyed to be your slave. So that happens. Then the Aes Sedai tap into the power of the Dark One, um, which has a name, but not there yet. So they access that. They unleash the Dark One. They create the boar at their location. Then we skip forward, and it's a couple generations down the line, and they are—they have just sealed the boar. After that, it's later in that guy's life. The breaking is occurring. The Aesidai say, like, hey, they're going to go make the Eye of the World. It's the job of—it's our job to try and stop this. It's your job to try and preserve stuff. So all of you Aiel are going to leave, and you're going to take all the artifacts that you can— and go and find somewhere safe and keep them there. We skip forward and there's nowhere safe. And what happens is because over the generations there has been nowhere safe, all that they do with these artifacts is become targets because they're bringing a bunch of wagons. And it's said that food is more valuable than gold. So, hey, you're bringing a bunch of wagons covered in boxes. You know, you're a great target for raiders and you can't fight back. So some of them say... We're going to keep not fighting people, but we're not going to bring any of these artifacts. Those people become the Tinkers. We skip forward again, and the people who are still the Aiel are still not fighting anybody and bring the artifacts with them. One portion of that group accidentally fights some people. We now have the Tinkers from before, and then they split, the Aiel split into the Aiel and the Gen Aiel. The Gen Aiel are still following both Way of the Leaf and carrying the artifacts. From that point on, those two groups just exist and move forward. The they, Aiel they're, so, still... they're sort of doing the Perrin and Fael thing. Yeah, the regular Aiel are still following the Gen Aiel because they're still respecting them, but the Gen Aiel are not accepting of the um, regular Aiel's existence. We'll accept you to protect us because we don't do the fighting, but like... I mean, they would still look down on it. Because, like, in theory, quote-unquote, people following the Way of the Leaf still look down on any violence. When Perrin and um, Elias in the first book are among the Tinkers, they continually try and convert Elias and try and convert Perrin because they do violence outside of the group and they wish that everybody followed the Way of the Leaf. Mm. So, from that point forward... The Aiel followed the Gen Aiel across the Dragon Wall. Now everybody is in the Waste. And then the Gen Aiel begin constructing Radeon because they couldn't find somewhere safe, so they make somewhere safe. They begin constructing Radeon before they all die out and before they finish building it. They set up the glass columns and say, okay, to lead the Aiel, you have to know why we are Aiel. You don't have to change, but you do have to know. You gotta know that we were in the right the whole time. This is our history. Yeah, Yeah. this is your history. You're not allowed to lead us without knowing why you 
are this way, why we are and, this way. And why we're waiting for someone to come and change everything. Yeah, and then they, um, and then the prophecy of he who comes with the dawn is made. And so, at that point, sometime after that, the Jedi all die out because they're trying to live in a desert. Now we're in the present. Now we're in the present. Radion was never being finished, finished being constructed. Every clan chief and wise one knows all of this history, although not exactly because it's, um, it's genetic. Like you're going back through your family line. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that was my understanding. I'm not sure it is. I mean, well, would every single Aiel have a direct bloodline to the people at that meeting? I mean, maybe not, but every single Aiel would have a direct bloodline to those four that accidentally killed when retrieving the girls from their group. I don't know. I just didn't make that assumption, but that might be true. Maybe. It might be keyed to those specific people, but the point is, you're at least seeing enough to know that the Aiel used to be part of the Jen Aiel used to follow the way of the leaf, etc., etc. Which is why the wise ones and the chiefs are so cagey about who's allowed to go into Roidian. Yeah. Because this truth is dangerous. Yeah, because if you were part of a third group and you didn't get uh, turned crazy by knowing this information, but also weren't chill with, like, never telling anyone. This is why nobody talks about Radeon, and certainly, like, even when Rand strongarms Ruark into talking about it, Ruark still refuses to talk about what happened in Radeon. Like, nobody talks about it. You literally... You never say it. Everybody that goes into Radeon knows, and if you haven't gone into Radeon, you're not prepared for the information. So, like... But if you're an outlander, you're like, okay, this is chill. Yeah, and so what they don't want is for somebody to not go crazy and then come out and talk about it. Which is what an outlander would definitely do. Yeah. Both the Jedi'il and the Aiel go to the waste. Yes. The Jedi'il try to make their magic-protecting castle. Yes. They all die. Well, it's a city, but yes. But somehow, even though the other Aiel are in the Waste, because they're not directly trying to build their city, they're not dead. Well, also, the Gen Aiel, if they're still following the Way of the Leaf, wouldn't hunt at all. Which means that they are trying to subsist in a desert by farming. Which isn't generally how people subsist in deserts, as far as I'm aware. Like, cactus... cacti exist... Yeah, but not all cacti are safe for human consumption, and nor do they have enough caloric. Hence, hence Jenaiel dead. Yeah, hence okay. all of the Jenaiel being dead. Your philosophy ends up with you being dead. So, so it's not some other darkness, whatever. It's just you're so stuck in your philosophy that you're dead. You could use yeah. the word stuck, or you could use the word dedicated. Oh my god. <laughs> Did you like I mean, that? You could also just say that their dogma is unsustainable, like, by definition of how they do things. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the way of the leaf is unsustainable in a world in which there are people that literally Don't follow the way of the leaf. Well, like, you could have people that don't follow the way of the leaf, but you can't do it in a world in which, like, Trollocs exist, who can't be reasoned with. Like, when the concept of evil creates things that... Because, like, at least if you wanted to say that you could follow the way of the leaf and somebody else could not, and they could do violence, and you could, 
like you might be able to appease them such that they didn't kill you if they wanted to harm you but like you can't appease Trollocs like it's unsustainable in this specific world but it wasn't necessarily unsustainable before the Dark One was released like in the way of the leaf they say if someone strikes me down they deal irreparable irreparable harm to their own soul so they wouldn't really do that but then Trollocs (laughs) are like what's a soul (laughs) yeah like what's a soul can I cook it <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Now we're here. Uh, now we're here. The yeah. They were just so dedicated that it was like it doesn't matter if we all die. The only thing that matters is that people know. We, people know that we find a safe place for these artifacts. There is nowhere safe. We have to make a safe place. Speaking of artifacts, someone has some sweet new artifacts. Yeah. Uh, so Rand steps out of the glass columns for the last time, and he turns back towards Avendasaur, and he's like, hey, is somebody hanging there? Hey, is that Matt? <laughs> Matt, I told you to just sit there. The tree magically makes you want to sit and do nothing. Why are you like this? Like, who hung you? Yeah. Um, so he cuts Matt down, and he performs CPR, including... Mouth to mouth, which I only note because I went looking for fan fiction about this series, and literally the only things that exist are crossovers and Matt Rand slash fiction. <laughs> also, I don't know if CPR works on a hanging victim. Uh, probably. Well, because it depends what type of hanging. Yeah, because the idea. So I mean, of... like, as long as it didn't like break his neck. Yeah, it just stopped him from breathing. Uh, so Rand performs CPR and revives Matt. He's now got this foxhead medallion and this weird staff that says something about um, the price is paid. And his head really hurts. Yeah, which maybe has to do with the whole choking to death thing. Because like, you why are the holes in his head filled? Yeah. Our boy now has his thing. We were talking before about how he needs a thing. He has his thing now. Yeah. Um, We'll get to his thing. I think even in the next section he shows off his... Well, I was going to say he shows off his thing, but I don't think that's appropriate. I know the podcast is marked explicit, but listen. (laughs) Matt now is himself. And thank goodness. Good old Matt. That's our Matt. So after they... It is worth noting, just in case it comes up later, Matt did die. Oh, He just got better? Yeah. This is one of the deaths that they were referring to? Yeah. Uh, Because when Rand checks on him, there's no heartbeat, and he's not breathing. So, like, Matt is dead, dead. And then he does the hitting the chest until there's a heartbeat, and then he does the mouth-to-mouth until there's breathing. Okay, so I remembered there was that whole prophesizing in the last gateway about him dying and living again. I didn't realize this was that. Yeah. So everybody gets to be magical Jesus. Yeah, because Matt Matt dies... uh, He dies once before that prophecy, which is... um, He's technically dead when they pull the dagger away from him. Mm -hmm. Um, But then he, like, actually, for real, 100%, heart stops, no breathing, dies here. Where's Papa Roach? Whoa. Cut my life into pieces. We're gonna get a copyright strike. 
so after uh, Matt and Rand like take a moment to breathe because they just went through some stuff, uh, they start to leave only to encounter a bubble of evil. It makes a bunch of one HP minions spawn. <laughs> <laughs> this is skim worthy. Yeah. Uh, they're fighting, including Matt. The only reason that it's not skim, uh, there's only two things in here not worth skimming. One is that Matt seems to already know how to use this weapon, which he did know how to use a quarterstaff, but he's also using the blade part of it as though he is already a master of it. Um, and also Rand thinks back to what Lanfear told him about like scoffing at him, making a sword out of the power. And he's like, oh, maybe she's right. And so he just explodes all of the enemies simultaneously. Huh. That's like, why didn't you do that earlier? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the power is more effective as magic. I was going to make a worm reference, but I don't want to explain it. Uh, more effective as magic than as a sword, which already exists in real life. Uh, so the boys make their way out of Rudion, and Matt's like, hey... It's about to be dawn. And we're about to come through. We're about to come through. It's about to be dawn. I sure hope those two events line up. Turns to camera. I wonder if someone's about to come with the dawn. Yeah. Like, Matt is strafing towards the tents so that he can keep eye contact with the camera as he's talking. (laughs) And uh, that's the end of the section. Whoop. Whoop, there it is. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, backstory in there. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of excited to talk about this because, Bion, you're always talking about how, like, cultural details are what interest you. Did this, like, scratch that itch at all? Uh... Because a lot of people reference this as, like, one of the highlights of the series. Um... I think if perhaps if I had just read these last couple chapters and then reread them and then reread them some more perhaps but I'm just also not invested like in the history of the IEL. It just seems like a lot of suffering and a lot of nonsense and a lot of philosophical things in which I just find frustrating. And perhaps it's because pacifism as a moral correct thing uh, makes me uncomfortable. And then following your roles as assigned in society is the thing to do. And you do that, and your ancestors did that, and your children will do that. It, It is not my jam. Well, then, boy, is it a good thing that the job of he who comes with the dawn is to break their chains and break them and remake them so that they don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's almost like the ones who followed that philosophy all died because they were too attached to it, and therefore it probably isn't being presented as the correct choice by the story. Yeah, just because, like, the Aiel are cool doesn't mean they're right. Yeah. This is the, like, anti-heroes are evil but hot. (laughs) Like, 
the characters are presenting it as right because to them it is correct, but I don't think that the story is necessarily presenting it as the right thing to do. Like a main tenant of the story is um, communication, like breaking down both across time and across space. So I... I guess that's interesting is that these... uh glass columns are the way to circumvent the breakdown of information over time. Yeah, it's almost like they had better Turangriel back during slash before the breaking. There's a VR helmet later. We better archive the fucking internet. Yeah. How did they make these memories? Is it like... That's a great question. If only we knew someone... Oh, wait, do we know someone? I don't know if we know someone yet who's good at making Turangriel. Because was it oral histories passed on through these multitudes of generations? Or is it somehow your DNA of trauma has, uh, with your magical Turangriel, you can capture... That's kind of why I think it's like a genetic thing, is because there's kind of That only, would make sense. There's kind of only two options, which is it's either like reaching into your Assassin's Creed genetic memory <laughs> and like... Letting you go backwards through time. We're going to the Animus. Yeah. Like, it's either the Animus or uh, those last couple Aes Sedai that were with the Genail knew how to program these memories into them somehow. But, like, it's clearly not an oral thing because Rand says that he, like, is this person. Yeah. So, like, somehow it's, like, you are being placed in their body. Yeah. Also for culture, things specifically in culture that fascinate me are food and clothing and medicine, art, uh, architecture. Uh, not this, basically. Um, not history? Well, not... <sighs> history is fascinating. History is great. This was just tiresome for me. It felt really religious and tedious. Well, then hopefully you will enjoy when it is continually not presented as being correct. So I'm feeling Anyways, the way I'm, I'm sure, supposed to be feeling. Anyways, I'm sure glad a lot of people think this is the best part of the series. Hmm. So. Am I going to get roasted? I don't think we're popular enough to have my opinion put to people and be roasted for it. No, I'm just worried that, like, you're not invested in this. Like, there's not much left to be invested in because the rest is pretty plotting. I mean, it's not that it's plotting, but, like, yeah, we can talk about it. It's just not that cool to me. Like, this is the last time that, like, things kind of pivot for a while. Tyler, what are we reading next week? That's a fascinating question. Let me pop open the pinned messages on Discord. We're reading chapters 27 through 36, which will take us through something that I'm sure I've designated as being a good stopping point. Great. Great. Yeah, this has been The Third Wheel. I'm Tyler. Oh, social media. (laughs) Fuck. Ruining our outro. Uh, Jesse, where can people find us? People can find us on our Twitter, at Wheel Reading. That'll be in the description, as always. If you leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service, it makes it a lot easier for people to find us, and we love hearing from anyone who listens. So we'd really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm Tyler. 
I'm Vion. And I'm Jesse. And we'll see you next time. Bye.